What kind of a friend is God to his people? To those whom he has saved, those whom he has made righteous by faith, he is a gracious friend. He is a patient friend. He is a forgiving friend. That's what kind of friend God is. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. We continue our series called The Blessing, looking at the story of Abraham. And, uh, you know, we know Abraham was a friend of God, but, you know, Jonathan, there may be some listening today who would say, I know that that was true of Abraham, but I don't know that that is true or could be true of me. I mean, I've made a mess of my life, and I don't see the patience and the, the goodness and the grace of God in my life. How, how could I actually be a friend of God? Well, this gets us to the heart of the Christian invitation, the Christian gospel. And, and the message of Christ is simply that God offers us friendship through Jesus, not because we are worthy friends for God, but because God desires relationship with us. And he's made it possible for us to enter into that relationship with him because he's given his son to pay the price of our rebellion, to remove our guilt, to cleanse our sin and to make us friends with God. That's that's the invitation, and it is for all who will respond in repentance and faith. It's for me, and it is as well for you. Well, we're going to continue to look at that today in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 18 as we continue our message, The Friend of the Righteous. Here is Jonathan. Astounding as it may seem, the Lord God of heaven, he wants to come into your life. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be welcomed into your home, and he wants to sit at the table of your heart. He wants to enjoy a banquet with you, and he invites you to his great banquet, to a feast in a day yet to come. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation. It's an open door, but you need to decide for yourself what will you make of it, and how will you respond to it? Will you welcome him in? Will you set aside any reservation any rebellion of heart? And will you welcome him through faith in Jesus, his son who came to earth to pay the price of your sin? He pursues fellowship with the righteous. That's what we see here. He pursues fellowship with those whom he makes right through faith and faith in Jesus. And he wants to do that for you. He wants to make you right with him through his son. He wants to enjoy friendship and fellowship with you. I wonder, would you receive him? Would you welcome him in? Brothers, we've, we welcome Jesus in before now. We have made our heart his home. But like the lukewarm believers of Laodicea in Revelation 3, we, we find that the Lord is now standing at the doorway rather than sitting at the table. He hasn't left us, of course. He hasn't departed. But he's now standing outside and he's, he's knocking And he wants us to repent of whatever it is that's kept him at a distance. He wants us to open the door, to welcome him in, to renew that friendship and that closeness. That's the the invitation of that, that passage I mentioned earlier. Listen again to the Lord's invitation. Revelation 3 and verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And friends, thinking of this truth, 
the truth that God wants to sit with us and enjoy fellowship together, as, as you think of that truth, it may awaken something in your heart. It may stir something in your heart. I don't know. It may rouse a memory for you of what it was like knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord in days gone by. You remember days of warm fellowship with the Lord, enjoying time with Him in His Word at the start of the day, talking with Him in prayer. But as you think of that, as you think of days gone by and your fellowship with the Lord that you enjoyed, it is for you actually a wistful thought. It's a wistful thought because you know that things have grown cold of of late. You know that you've been holding the Lord at a distance, either through, through sin or through distraction or inattention or something else. But that is actually the situation of your heart, and as you reflect on it, you recognize it. Well, if that's you, would you today, like Abraham, welcome him afresh with honor and with joy, with all that you have set before him, all the best of your life at his disposal? Would you do that? The Lord, he pursues fellowship with the righteous. But not only that, we learn here that the Lord is patient with the righteous. Often the test of a a friendship comes when there is a setback or a disappointment or a failure of some kind. Most relationships in most spheres, they work out okay when things are uncomplicated, when pressure points aren't present. But what you really want to know about a new relationship is this. How is it going to go when things get complicated? Isn't that the question? How will it go when I let my friend down, when I, when I fail in some way, when I disappoint, as I surely will? At this point in the story, we turn to Sarah, Abraham's wife. The visitors ask Abraham, verse 9, where, where is she? It turns out that she's nearby, able to hear what's being said, but currently out of sight, listening at the tent door. And, and the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And in response to that, because of the reality of her age, 90 and more, Sarah, verse 12, she laughs to herself. Now, here we have the Lord God himself at the family table speaking his great promise, reaffirming what he has said before, and Sarah's response, here it is, she laughs at the word of God. It's not really ideal, is it? It's not the ideal response of faith. From from a human perspective, we can perhaps understand it on one level. The whole thing would, of course, sound absolutely absurd were it not the Lord God Himself who was speaking the promise. But laughing at God's promise, it's never the way to go. And we remember at this point that Sarah's track record on this matter is not really all that great. Only a couple of chapters before now, she grew impatient with the fulfillment of God's plan And she took matters into her own hands, giving her servant as a wife to Abram to speed on the purposes of God. And it was a total disaster. We remember the story. Well, the Lord, for his part, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. But neither does he just brush this off and ignore it. No, he pursues it just a little bit. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The Lord doesn't get angry. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you're going to laugh at me and my word, I'll take my blessing elsewhere. Thank you very much. 
He actually, in His grace and in His kindness, He reaffirms His promise. Despite this graciousness, out of fear and probably out of some embarrassment, Sarah now makes things worse. She actually digs in deeper. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. So now there is dishonesty on top of impertinence. The situation is getting worse. Perhaps now is the moment when the Lord will give up and walk out. Perhaps this is the moment when his temper will flare and his patience will run out. But how does the Lord actually respond? Well, he responds with extraordinary patience and with steadiness. End of verse 15. He said, no, but you did laugh. You did do that. But his plans, his purposes, his promises for Sarah, they remain unchanged. Despite everything, she is going to have Isaac. She will receive the promises of God. Her situation will remain unchanged before him. What kind of a friend is God to his people, to those whom he has saved, those whom he has made righteous by faith, those with whom he has entered into a covenant relationship? Well, he is a gracious friend. He is a patient friend. He is a forgiving friend. That's what kind of friend God is. How will God treat his friends when they let him down, when they fail him, and when they do it again and again to the point where their failure becomes frankly embarrassing, even shocking? Will he lose his cool? Will he storm out, slam the door, never come back again? No, that's, that's not what he's going to do. No, no, that's, that's not what he's like. One of the massive takeaways of the Abraham and Sarah story is the sheer patience of God with his people. We might imagine going in, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they're famous. We might imagine going in that the story is going to be all about Abraham and Sarah, the great heroes of, of faith. But, you know, as we read it, it's not so much the case that it's about that. In much larger measure, the story we are discovering, it is about the God of grace who bears with a stumbling and a slow-to-learn people. And I think that's maybe the biggest encouragement about this story. What we see here is that God takes extraordinary steps to reach and save an unworthy people, and then he goes to extraordinary lengths to keep them. He shows patience upon patience upon patience with his friends. And I love that because don't you and I need the patience of God in our sin and in our unbelief, in our stumbling and our failure again and again and again to the point at which it becomes frankly embarrassing and much more besides. You know, if God had a short fuse and a quick temper, if his patience was small, you and I, we would be without hope in the world. Isn't that the case? But praise God, he is patience with the people whom he makes righteous by faith. And perhaps for you today, that's the rich truth. That's the deep encouragement you need to take away. You've had occasion, maybe just this last week, you have had occasion to fear that you have exhausted the patience of God. Ever wondered that? You've let him down one too many times. You've stumbled in sin. You've drifted into disobedience or disbelief of some kind, and it's not for the first time. Oh, no. And you wonder, will God now lose his temper? Is this the time when he's going to storm out of the relationship? But, you know, that's not the God we meet in the Scriptures. 
And that's not the God we meet here in Genesis 18. What kind of a friend is God to his righteous people? He is a patient friend. And how good that is to remember. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The Friend of the Righteous, taking a look at how the Lord relates to the righteous and how the righteous are to relate to him. And if you've missed any part of this broadcast, because maybe you joined us late or you know you can't stay with us through the end of the program, come to the website and listen to each and every broadcast online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, you can find out a little bit more about a book we'd love to send you this month. It's called Everything a Child Should Know About God. It's a book Jonathan used with his own kids, and it's our thank you gift to you as you give a gift to support this month. Being a listener-supported broadcast, we do depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. So come to the website, give your gift, and request a copy of Everything a Child Should Know About God. Our website address, EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Once again, here's Jonathan. What kind of a friend is God to his righteous people? He is a patient friend. And how good that is to remember. Thirdly and finally, as we finish, we see here that God hears the intercessions of the righteous for the righteous. One of the best things about friendship is the opportunity to share with a friend what you are thinking, what you are planning to do, sharing with them, hearing from them, listening to their concerns, listening to their reactions, their ideas, chewing things over together. That's a great thing about friendship. And here in this passage, to our great surprise, we see God do that very thing with Abraham. The heavenly visitors, they are on their way from Abraham's tent. In verse 16, they set off toward the city of Sodom, and Abraham accompanies them as they depart. The Lord knows what's coming, and, and, and of course he does. And he says, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide my plans from him? Since, since he's in covenant relationship with me, uh, bound to lead his household in righteousness with the promise of my blessing before him. Verse 19, verse 20. The report of the wickedness of Sodom, it's, it's very, very great. And so the Lord says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to go down and see it for myself. And Abraham, he understands what God is planning to do. He, he can read between the lines now. He gets the message, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, at this point, we enter into one of the most dramatic and, frankly, one of the most surprising interactions recorded between the Lord and any of his servants anywhere in the Bible. Here, Abraham has the boldness to engage in something that almost looks like haggling with the God of the universe, the judge of all the earth. I mean, Abraham has a boldness here that most of us wouldn't have with our boss at work, let alone the Lord God of heaven above. A plan is being disclosed you don't particularly like the sound of it. You're hopeful that it might not come to pass. And the reasoning, the haggling, the negotiating, it begins. If you did this at work and pushed it too far, you might fear that the boss would lose patience and tire of your services. If a child did this at home with their parents, he or she might recognize that the end of the parent's fuse would become visible before too long. But here Abraham presses on, and to our astonishment, God puts up with it. And we need to see here, we need to identify the specific dynamics of what Abraham is doing. Remember, he is a righteous man. We've learned that. He is one known by God in good standing with God on the basis of his faith and not of works. And he knows that judgment is about to fall on this wicked city. 
He's not asking the Lord to ignore the sin of the city, to sweep it under the table and not to judge it. That's not what he's asking for. But here's what he is after. He wants to make sure that any righteous people within the city will not be swept away in this judgment. And I suppose if we think about it, he's probably particularly concerned about his nephew Lot and his household who now live in the city. So what we see here is a righteous man interceding for the righteous. And so he begins verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And having made his opening plea, Abraham now appeals to the character of God. He, he does so in words that are justly famous, words that many will be familiar with, at least in part. Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Lord, I know judgment is coming upon Sodom. I know they deserve it. But what if there are 50 righteous people within the city? Will you not hold back your judgment for their sake? Far be it from you to execute your judgment on those who ought not to be judged. Shall not you, the judge, do what is just? And of course, the answer is yes, he's going to do what's just. He always does. He always will. And in gracious condescension, in perfect justice, in perfect fairness, the Lord answers Abraham, verse 26, if I find in Sodom 50 in the righteous city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, for the rest of the passage, Abraham then pursues the issue. He persists. What about, what about 45? How about 40? What about 30? 20? How about 10, Lord? And each time, the Lord confirms that for such a number, for a dwindling number of righteous, he will spare the city. As with everything else recorded in the Scriptures for us, we do well to sort of stand back and ask, stand back from the drama, stand back from the narrative, and ask the question, why did the Lord cause this to happen? And why did the Lord cause this to be recorded here for us. I mean, the Lord could have shut down the conversation before it began. He could have left no record of it. But here it is for us in the pages of Scripture. What are we to learn? What is it that Abraham himself learned? Well, I think we're meant to see here that in this work of judgment and of salvation, God is totally fair. God is totally just. He always is. In his work of bringing judgment to the wicked, he is patient. He is careful. I mean, the carefulness of God, the care of God in all this is remarkable. Notice again verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. You know, there are too many, far too many people in prisons around the world who have languished for years in prison for crimes that they did not commit. And we, we rightly ask when we hear stories of that, you know, did the judge pay proper attention to the facts? Did he read the case file thoroughly? Did he take account of all the evidence? A sloppy judge is a fearful thing, and there are plenty of heartbreaking stories of wrongful conviction. But never so with the Lord. And so Abraham's declaration that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, we see it in action here. He is just, he is fair, and what a comfort that is for us. But we see something else, something beyond that. We see that he listens. Isn't that the even bigger takeaway here? 
His righteous servant comes to him and pleads for the righteous. And the just judge pauses and he listens. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Doesn't that come as a reassurance to us today? In this intercession of Abraham, in this exchange as the righteous speaks for the righteous, we are seeing something here that's going to be repeated and that's going to be amplified as the story of salvation moves forward. We are actually seeing here in Genesis chapter 18 a gospel pattern that is going to flower fully when the Lord Jesus comes and dies for sin and rises again and ascends to heaven as our great high priest. The greater son of Abraham the truly righteous man, is, the Bible tells us, even now at the right hand of God on high, interceding for His righteous people. That's what's going on in heaven even today. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, ever lives to intercede for us. First John chapter 2 and verse 1 gives us the reassurance that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous now, we might ask, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we have a righteous advocate before God the judge? Why does it matter for us to know that God is going to listen to His intercessions on behalf of His people? Well, friends, it matters today because you and I are a flawed and a failing people. We are a people who sin and who sin again and who let our Lord down. And added to that, we, we live in a world, we live in a city that is headed for destruction that is on course for divine judgment. And we will all have those times, most of us, all of us perhaps, when we wonder if we too are actually headed for that flood of destruction along with the wicked because we know we deserve it. And so the point of the reassurance is this, there is one in the throne room of heaven above, a righteous man whose work it is to advocate for his righteous people before the Father to say to the Father, this servant of yours, this servant is righteous, righteous because I died for her, I died for him. Far be it from you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Save her, keep him. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I, I, I died for this sinner, and justice demands their salvation because the price has been paid. And the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, it gives us a window actually into what will be happening in heaven even now, even today. The judge of all the earth, he is a just judge. He's going to listen to the righteous one because that's what he does. And he's going to do what is right for the sake of his righteous people. What's it like to be a friend of God? What are the dynamics of that friendship? Well, it's a privileged thing. We are in a privileged position. It looks like enjoying friendship with the God who wants to know you, who truly desires fellowship with you. It looks like sitting down at the banqueting table with the King of Kings. It looks like being a recipient of His patience and how you and I need His patience each day. It looks like sheltering under His justice and His mercy and how we rest upon His justice and His mercy even as our advocate pleads our case before his throne. There's no greater privilege in all the universe than living in covenant relationship, than living in vital friendship with the God of heaven above. 
do you know that friendship? And are you enjoying it today? Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, The Friend of the Righteous, part of our series, The Blessing. And we've been looking at Genesis chapter 18 today. If you missed any part of this broadcast or any previous broadcast in the series, you can come to our website and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported program. We're able to stay on this station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book that Jonathan has used with his own kids. It's called Everything a Child Should Know About God. It's written by Ken Taylor, and this book is our thank you gift to you as you give a gift of any amount this month. You can give your gift online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. Well, thanks for listening today. For Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller, and I hope you'll join us next time.